to all things outdoors. Welcome to episode 170 from Panoramic Outdoors, presented to you by iHunter. Know your eggs inside and out. I'm Sheldon Grant. I got my good partner, good buddy, Tristan, sitting across from me, and we were just actually chatting before we started recording about fishing. We probably should have hit record before, but <laughs> that's the way it goes sometimes, eh? Yeah, yeah, just catching up, shooting the shit, you know? Yeah. Um, it was actually good because on this episode, we had Joe Pell on, who we've had on twice before. So it was kind of like shooting the shit with him. Like uh, it wasn't so much Q and A. It was just kind of well, it kind of was still. But um, yeah, what a what a wonderful wonderful guest, wonderful guy. Yeah, I, I was just saying, I was sad I missed that one because uh, it would have been great to catch up with Joe. I know he's been up to a lot since since we chatted with him last, and he's just kind of been putting in the time, putting in the the effort, and it's it's been awesome to see his kind of his game grow. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then he, um, I don't know if you remember, but he was in his like office in quotations, which like had a beautiful backdrop of like, t- like old tin with a fireplace or a wood stove, I mean, and some mounts and a big moose mount on the one end. But I don't know if you recall, but the last time we did had a podcast episode with him, that room was, there's nothing in it. It was just the tin. And I just like, as soon as he came on the video, I'm like, oh my God, your room's done. And he was just like, yeah, last time, you know, blah, blah, blah. So That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. A little progress. It's coming after Jim Shockey. Yeah, he's next in line. Very but cool. um, new news for Panoramic Outdoors. I thought I'd share a few things with you and our listeners, you, Tristan, and our listeners. But um, we've uh, kind of inked a deal with Badlands again for another year. So we'll be uh, wearing, representing, and doing the Badlands gear again. I'm pretty excited because not only do they have like your outdoor camouflage clothing, they have a lifestyle, they have a lot of lifestyle clothing, but um, backpacks, like packs, uh, like bino harnesses, I know we've touched on them, but the packs and the backpacks, I want to grab one of them and try it out. Because, you know, like uh, going to our moose camp, it is a, you know, three quarter of a mile walk through there. Or even packing out meat, I want to try one of their their systems. Have you? Do you have one of their backpacks? Yeah, yeah, I got one of their lighter backpacks, and it uh, it hasn't. Pack? Yeah, it hasn't failed me yet. And actually, it's been nice because, like before, I just had like a El Cheapo pack, and you don't really think about things like compartments and and all that different stuff. And now, I don't know. At least, especially doing things like elk hunting or moose hunting, like when you're you're having a little bit more of a dy- dynamic hunt and I, mm-hmm. i'm guessing the same might be true for mule deer um you kind of want to know where the stuff is in your pack you don't want to be just fumbling around in one giant bag like a santa claus sack looking for your your compass or whatever right we don't use compasses anymore really but um <laughs> if you're looking for it your lighter whatever you know what i mean you got to spark up a captain after after you down a moose, you can't be fumbling around in your pack looking for a captain, right? No, that's exactly right. And, you know, like, that's the thing, too, is, like, um, with those little compartments and stuff, I never realized how much you want to use those compartments until I got into my, like, more, let's say, um, 
exploring type hunting when you're in the backwoods and you're you know you're looking at eye hunter and all this shit and then you you feel like well you you don't feel you have to be prepared for some of those situations so just like you said a lighter but like i mean you can you you have all those compartments for a reason first aid whatever it might be because before i used to run like a north face pack which is like this is exactly what you said it was like one big bag and uh i just threw whatever in there whatever but now i i've realized over the years you got to be prepared so there's a little uh go ahead Maybe for both of us, the big thing is the elk calls because you don't want to lose those. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> this has got to come up every year. I thought well, I was going to go 2024 without this well, coming up. Not just you, me too. Like, I, I lose my diaphragm calls once in a while, and it's just like, you know, sure, you shake it off, but uh, maybe it's that one you like or uh, you had broken in properly, or uh, you can't, once you lose one, you can get away with You lose two, now you're looking at like 25 bucks worth of calls down the tube. Yeah. Yeah, so you can't do that every time you go out. Get a good pack, keep your shit straight. Yeah, that's right. And the other big news I wanted to tell you about and our listeners about is that we are teaming up with Citizen Canvas again. We worked with them a couple of years ago. Um, they've got an awesome, they've got a whole bunch of awesome gear, but the one tent that we use is, a, I think it was a Pro 500, um, and it was it's a Bell-style tent, so it's like, kind of like a TP-style tent. It's got one pole, so you, if you're in a pinch or... You know, whatever you can set that tent up in like five minutes compared to like a prospector's tent where you got to set up a bunch of poles or cut down trees or whatever. This one's one pole and then a bunch of like just guy it kind of thing, so you can tie the trees or pegs or whatever. Um, but yeah, Citizen Camps working with them again this year, so I'm super excited for that because they got a lot of cool stuff. If you want to check them out, go to their website, uh, look them up on uh, look them up on Instagram. You can look up uh, Citizen Canvas. Um, yeah, they're, they're a great company. We love working with them the first time, and we're going to enjoy it the second time too. So big thanks to them. Yeah, you're kind of never lost with a tent like that. You just kind of set it up and get to go. Yeah. The only like the only thing I would change with, like, say, our setup is try to figure out a way to get it up off the ground like another foot just to have, like, the space along the walls a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But then at the same breath, it's good because you can kind of, like, store everything along the walls and, like, yeah do your movements in the in the middle but anyways yeah. Yeah. sorry for served, another day served us well so far yeah um what about lake winnipeg you've been you've been hammering fish on there i know they have a tournament this weekend don't they yeah we're wishing april well she's out there fishing with blake hopefully they're they're just tight lining it and uh pulling in the hogs hopefully it's been treating me well too. Like uh, I can't say it's been skill necessarily, but a uh, few spots pulled into just shy of a master walleye again. This last trip that I went on on the Saturday, sixty nine nice. centimeters, uh, twenty seven and a quarter inches for our for American friends, um, which is quarter inch shy of a master angler. No big deal, but the <laughs> fish look healthy out there. I'll tell you that much. And have I you win. seen any difference from this year to from last year? I mean, I'm catching fish, so there has to be a difference. <laughs> like, a, yeah, Lake I didn't Winnipeg. catch I didn't catch one master last year, and I've got like I'm gonna say two and a half, maybe even three under my belt right now. Okay, fair enough. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that Lake Winnipeg would really be hard to justify year to year differences because it's so big and and there's a lot of different things that affect that lake you know Inclu- it, including my own personal luck well there you go exactly puck luck that's right 
But um, I was okay. It's amazing how often I talk about Eye Hunter. Um, quick Eye Hunter sidebar here. We were on the lake again this past Saturday, and we land up using my old GMC there, 2005 GMC. No big deal. Okay. Um, Sierra 50 relic. Yeah, she's got a little a little tickety boo when you start her up, and uh, there's a there's a few love marks on her, but. <laughs> In the end, she got us all the way out there. Only got stuck once, uh, but definitely. And I, I made this same comment online because I was reading. I don't know if you ever go on Facebook and read the uh, the fishing community comments there. But one person was just getting into ice fishing, and they're like, "What do I need for setup?" And everyone's like, "You need like six tow ropes and four shovels, and <laughs> make sure, make sure you got." 18 bags of kitty litter and no one, no one mentioned any kind of navigational device. I'm like, if you're listen, if you're headed onto the lake, cause this happened to us on Saturday, the wind, the wind was up when we headed out there. Um, you know, you can only see a few hundred yards. So like, it doesn't take long to lose the shoreline. It doesn't take long for your track to get blown in. Um, so we set the track feature on iHunter and we were good the whole way. Um, and then I marked each individual ice crossing because I wanted to like That's know exactly idea. where those ice crossings were that were safe. Because if those get blown in, uh, you know, you don't know if an ice if that's an ice ridge or just a snowdrift sometimes, right? So I, I make a point of marking those with Eye Hunter. That's a super good idea. Yeah. Yeah. And like I mean, so like I continue to use it into the winter here. I've got the shacks marked, which is more accurate than a lot of the stuff that we use, like other people might be using. Um, but you know, I was also just reminded too of like a few other things that we appreciate with iHunter, especially like knowing the market coming in now is like we've worked with iHunter for a while and we were part of that product development and knowing that they're not just like a Canadian made brand and entity, but like we, you and me know the guys that run iHunter. If you message iHunter, you're getting marker chat. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're getting a response from them. Sometimes I send them updates about like what's happening locally. They love that. Um, but also like, I think that's a great feature about them too, is like you get these regional updates about what's going on locally. So like when I saw that the the river levels were rising, we didn't know what that meant for the water levels in the red. Uh, we mm -hmm. sent that over and they were able to share that. There's a few things that just really, you know, keep me going with the, the iHunter app strong here. Um, and then, you know, we'll remind folks too, that there's, there's a few different ways you can engage with them. Uh, be sure to check out the store, uh, the web store there, you can find discounts. Uh, so that's store.ihunterapp.com. Um, you're able to purchase stuff there and you're able to to get a, a discount and then be sure to sign up for their mailing list in the app too. So that keeps you up with the latest and the greatest. So like if you go into the app, there's a spot there where you can uh, sign in for the, the mailing list. And then that way you get all the information that you need to, uh, to stay in tune with iHunter. But yeah, just, uh, ex just, you know, continue to be excited about using this product. Um, throughout the year i gotta and i'm gonna have to add to that because the one not the one thing but the i'm just gonna say the one thing because it's easier for me and my vocabulary is very small but the one thing that um i hunter really makes me proud of like working with them and 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 there's a bunch more words i could probably use is but they 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 support us in manitoba too 
right? Not only all around Canada they do, but like just for us being in Manitoba, like they they support the Manitoba Wildlife Federation. They support some of these groups, and they're they're donating money and time to like some of their banquets and and you know all this stuff. Um, you know, there's other companies out there that do that have like a similar type of app, and I'm not going to mention any names, but I doubt they give much back to like these local smaller branches of of um, you know conservation, let's say. And iHunter does just that, and I, I I applaud them every time I see their name on like pamphlets and brochures, and they're they're always involved. So, you know, the next time you go to look at buying a buying an app for you know the to get outside, just think of iHunter. Think about what they're doing locally too, right? So I think that's super huge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got another question for you before we start uh, making moves to the meat and potatoes of this podcast episode. But in the Winnipeg Sun, there's a big article about uh, First Nation hunters aimed to change provincial restrictions. Did you read that yet? No, I didn't take a look, no. No, it just came across my table this week uh, or across my desk this week. And it's actually, uh, I just started reading it a little bit uh, before we got online here. Very, uh, very interesting. And I suggest you, I'll send it to you. Yeah, please do. Yeah. Uh, we also obviously have moose problem in Manitoba, so it's always interesting when uh, these articles come up, see what people are thinking and some ideas to change, right? Mm-hmm, totally. Um, I had a quick one for you, too. You you sure. sent us a walleye recipe there, Sheldon, me, Josh, and Chase there, and uh, I didn't get a chance to do it yet, but uh, what, what was going on? Where did that come from? What was the... <laughs> okay, here's the deal. Yep. Sheldon got a little fat in 2023, right? So no, you got 2024 rolls around, and I'm like, you know, I got to do something different. So, anyways, I started kind of doing the carnivore with a little mix. It's not like a clean carnivore. I think they call it like dirty carnivore. So, I, so I like it's a little bit of dairy and like the odd odd green veg, vegetable, odd green vegetable. So, anyways, went ice fishing a couple weekends ago and caught a, a good limit of walleye. Um, and I was just kind of thinking of a way to cook it without like breading it, without putting catch and cook on it. Uh, something that's just like easy. So came up with, um, what I ended up doing is just baking these fillets or fillets, depends on who you are, where you are, uh, baked them in the oven at like 350. And what I did is I put a thin little piece of like cream cheese on the, on the entire top of the fillet and then, um, cut up cherry tomatoes in half and kind of place them on top. Almost look like a little cake, and then uh, bake them. And when they're just about done, I give them a little squirt of lime juice, and then bake them for like the last couple of minutes, and pull them out. And, oh my god, it's like my it might be my new favorite way to eat walleye. I'm not kidding you. Well, we'll add it to the recipe book with the Ukrainian skillet. I think here to like really, really start putting things together. Yeah, I'd hate to compare cookbooks with you, Chase and uh, Josh, because I've got two, and you guys probably got like 300. So. But whatever. Hey, I actually I want to jump back to the sh- the shack stuff. Um, yeah. So you, so you went out to the shack to to Tyler's shack on the other day. Yeah. Um, have you guys ever been stuck in that sh- like stuck in a shack and been like, oh shit, we probably shouldn't go home. Like, and I mean, I'm not saying because of just because of the weather. Let's go with the weather. Uh, like Tyler, we're normally out with Tyler. Tyler's normally got a track machine, so things are normally pretty. Right. Like just like between eye hunter and the track machine, it's kind of like pointed towards shore and go. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. 
In our younger days, there's definitely been a few like questionable calls pre pre track machine, but we uh we definitely sent it and probably got stuck. Probably did some shoveling and, and some temperatures that were pretty pretty blistery. But we made it. We're here to tell tell a story. I mean there was there's things you can do to help yourself out in those situations too, right? Yeah, there was a time when we first started this podcast that guys stayed in your shack and left you guys money, hey? Yeah, they got turned around in a in a blizzard or something like that on the lake. One of those situations, and they, they broke into our shack and left us a 20 for the, the wood they burnt. Oh, yeah. It's pretty sick. That's not like it's scary because you know the weather's going to you know calm down eventually, but it's uh, probably a pretty weird feeling <laughs> being stuck on the lake in, in a shack. Man, like if you lost your heat source, it would it would get scary pretty quick. I feel like that's very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Anyways, episode one hundred and seventy. Joel Pell, are you ready to launch this baby or what? Yeah, I can't wait, man. Let's do it. Well, everyone, we are doing another episode of Panoramic Outdoors, and we've got an awesome guest. I say this about every everybody, but I actually mean it. This time, um, we've had him on. What, two times now, Joe? Yeah, it's been at least two times over the years here. I can't remember if it's been two or three. I think two sounds right. Yeah, so this is the third time we're having Joe on the podcast. Um, your trophy room's looking a little bit more. It's uh, kind of like finally finished. First time we talked, it was just uh, kind of framed up. So, ooh, look at that moose over there. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm running out of space in here, and I've got some stuff at the taxidermist as we speak so um i'm gonna have to get pretty creative in the near future i think (laughs) i feel like that's the worst waiting game is taxidermist i have two deer i'm doing a double mount right now and my he's working on them right now and so i get like a picture here and it's like a suggestion about ear you know the where we're gonna put the ears in what position and i'm like i just want them home already (laughs) (laughs) yeah i just I got a buddy who does phenomenal work out here and I send them pictures of the animals in the field. Um, and I say, you know what? I really like this body position uh, because obviously through what I do, I'm normally filming the animals beforehand. So I just send them some pictures in the field. And they're like, this I think really does justice to the animal. It's a nice pose. Um, and he tends to make them look that way. So it works out pretty well. That's really cool. That's cool. I've seen on, I think it's Instagram. There's a fella, um, I don't know if it's a company or he does it just like on his own, but if you send him a picture of your animal, he'll like draw a picture for you of that, like, oh. yeah, that, that buck or that moose or whatever. That's and cool. he does some phenomenal work. So yeah, it's kind of like another way to like kind of make a trophy of, of the mm-hmm. game or whatever. Um, Joe, I don't, you, you are familiar with our podcast. We're going to hit you with five burning questions. I'm going to let April throw hers first, her first two. I'm going to do two and then she'll hit you with the last one. Does that sound fair? Oh boy. That they're burner, they're burners. Gonna get, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, so you have, can, don't really have a choice. Remember, you can answer them as quickly or as in full as you like. Um, so my first question for you, Joe, is uh, what was your most memorable moment or experience in the CFL? In the CFL? Ooh, great question. Um, I thought you were going to say the hunting season. In the CFL, I Although that's say- coming. <laughs> <laughs> In the CFL, I would have to say probably there was a moment um, towards the end of the game and the 100th Great Cup, we were on the field and we had enough of a lead. We knew we were going to win the Pack Stadium in Toronto. 
And uh, we stepped back and Ricky Ray was our quarterback at the time. And he looked at us and I think it was a TV timeout. And he just said, boys, take a moment, enjoy it. You're on the field. We just won the hundredth great cup. And uh, it was like this peaceful, surreal moment. Everything kind of just faded away. And I was just out there with the boys and we looked around the stadium because very rarely when you're on the field, do you actually look and pay attention to the crowd or do any of that. So stepping back and, and kind of letting that sink in, that's probably the most memorable moment right there. I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good question. What is your favorite or most used hunting caliber and why? Ooh, uh, this year, hands down, I have fallen in love with my 300 PRC. Um, it has just been such a beautiful cartridge for me. Like just shooting, it cuts the wind really well. Um, I, I was worried at first that it was going to do a lot of meat damage. Um, but just, I used the, the precision hunter from Hornady, the 212 grain ELDX tip, and it drops the animal. My caribou made it the farthest out of any animal this year. And my caribou made it about six steps and then dropped everything else dropped on the spot. And I did like, I was blown away, very minimal, uh, meat loss and just sudden impact, like those bang flops that you can feel good about. The animal didn't know what was coming and they're done. Uh, so 100% 300 PRC has got my heart right now. That's great. <clears throat> um, my first question for you. So since the last time I talked to you, you're now a father, correct? Yes, correct. <laughs> tell me tell me either one word, a couple words or a sentence of being a new father. What's that like? It sounds cliche and overused, but just the best feeling in the world, um, plain and simple. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Um, and then my, my second question is if you did have like, I think we might've asked you this before, but now you've kind of, you're in like the TV game a lot. You're, you're kind of uh, getting the miles on with your hiking boots, hiking around. But if you did have that one trip in like North America, where, where would you be going and what would you be hunting for? Oh, one trip in North America. Um, I am dying to get up to Alaska. I have not hunted Alaska yet. Um, and I think, yeah, as a kid, like there's probably two species or three species in Alaska, which would be Alaskan brown bear, Alaskan moose, um, and then uh, sheep hunt up there. So <laughs> it doesn't iron, it doesn't narrow it down to one, but just any anything in Alaska. I mean, heck, if I went up duck hunting in Alaska, I think I'd be ear to ear. Yeah. I've always thought that Alaska is like my, it's my bucket list for sure. I always wanted to drive up there from like BCL or, or from Manitoba, obviously, and drive up to Alaska. Um, I've heard of a few people doing that and like stopping and dropping a line in some rivers and creeks and stuff. And it just sounds like a dream of a couple weeks to, to do, right? So that'd be fun. Nope, hey, but you got the last one? I do. Um, my last question for you, Joe, is why did you choose to work with Steve? <laughs> I've been asking myself that every single day since I did it. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it was an opportunity that opened up to me after I came on with wild TV. Um, and I have to be honest, it's been a treat working with Steve. Um, he's been such a pillar in the industry for a long time and, you know, he's quirky, he's funny, uh, but he's serious when it needs to be. And he's one of the most dedicated individuals you can ever be around. Um, and it's, it's been awesome working with him alongside him. We sure butt heads from time to time, but, uh, all in all, I'd say it's, I've learned a lot from working with him over the years. So I'm, I'm pretty darn lucky to have that. 
I may say that question with like a little bit of attitude, but I actually really like Steve. I met him at the Yorkton Outdoor Show and like didn't, I'm just, I'm nobody from nowhere. And he actually took the time to chat with me. And like, I asked him a whole bunch of questions about elk hunting. And then I had messaged him on Instagram after and just like, like the season had progressed and everything and i so i kind of gave him like an update and he i'm it seemed like he remembered our conversation and he was just he was really nice and i feel like that's hard to come by with the you know professionals and the i don't know you're you're saying he's not a prick like i am well i don't know you yet joe so i'm not saying i know i'm just yet I'm just kidding. I, I uh, yeah, I think some people, you know, that might follow Steve's uh, social, they, they get the wrong impression sometimes that he's, you know, a hard ass or a meanie, but yeah. uh, he's a great guy. He puts on a hard cover, but he's a big softie inside. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Steve, I, I'm pretty sure April, you might be our in to get him onto the podcast because we have reached out and asked him before and um, he respectively declined, but like just, uh, he's just too good for us right now, I guess. So we're going to have to keep bothering I- him. I know a guy that knows him. I might be able to put some pressure on him. We'll see. <laughs> there you go. Good word. Well, it's a good segue, Joe, mm-hmm. because I know if, if anybody doesn't know who Joe is, he's playing, he's playing the CFL, uh, retired from the CFL, and then went into the hunting fishing industry with Wild TV and stuff like that. And I think this is a great segue because if you, if you want to hear more about Joe, you can check out our other episodes with him. But what I want to talk about is how you've kind of switched gears to get into the outdoor industry and what's that been like since retiring from the, from the CFL, like um, how like how many years has it been now since you retired and like, how's that transition of a, like a whole new career? Let's say. Um, yeah, I, I retired from the CFL in 2014 or 2015. I'm, I'm that old that I forget <laughs> when I, when I walked away from it. Um, and I tell you what, if I watch a football game nowadays, I cringe. I'm like that guy that goes, Ooh, how do they do that? And back then I used to do it without even batting an eye. So, uh, how does it feel? Uh, my joints and my bones and my body thank me for walking away when I did. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I don't hold back when I'm in the mountains. I've done some pretty nasty, ugly pack outs and stuff since. So I'm still beating my body up just in a different way. But um, you know, it was in my mind, I walked away from football. I was, I was done with the sport. I enjoyed it when I was playing. Um, but it got to the point where it was starting to feel like a job. Um, I was getting too deep into the politics behind it all. And, um, it just kind of, uh, painted the experience for me. So I, I stepped away and I took an opportunity. I went back to school. Um, you know, a lot of people think that I just, you know, retired from football and then went into, being a TV host and that's how I earned my living. What actually happened is um, I retired from football. I went back to school. I got my master's in marketing and advertising. So my MBA did the whole book learned thing. And um, then I took on my, my first job after that is I managed Western Canada for an athletic supplement company. So I had a position in, in, in sales and I did a lot of that stuff. I just wanted to make sure I had like real value to offer people. And then an opportunity opened up with wild TV that I started to pursue. Um, and ultimately it was an opportunity that was a big pay cut, a huge increase in workload, a big strain on my family or my wife and I, I should say. Um, but I picked up some side jobs to kind of carry the weight while I got my feet wet. And, um, I just, my wife loved the idea. She knew what I was passionate about. 
And uh, yeah, I kind of just chased the dream down. It was a lot of work at the front, um, but it's easy when you're so passionate about it. I think if, if I had to make that type of career transition into something I wasn't so passionate about, I would have backed out in no time, but I just enjoy it so much that it hasn't really felt like a job. And um, over the years, it's finally started to pay off and create this new experience and this new life for me and my family, which has been fun. Yeah. And like, that's the thing too, is like, I know you kind of made a joke like, oh, I'm so old. I can't, or, you know, like I retired in 2015, but like as a guy in your era or our era, what was it like, like transitioning to like being active on social media and, you know, being on Instagram, all that stuff. Was that hard to learn or like, like, I, cause yeah, I've kind of always yeah. been doing it in a way, but what was that like? Yeah. Um, that was different for me. Anybody that knew me growing up or even through my football career, I was not a, um, like a social media type guy. I was more of, I mean, I'm an old, I was an old lineman, right? Like you're the unsung hero. You're the guy that shows up, does his job and goes home. Only time anybody's talking about you is when you screwed up. Um, and I liked it that way, but, um, I also felt that at times, um, people in the outdoors didn't get the right voice kind of in, in media. So I started speaking up there a bit when I was in Toronto, I went on the news a few times and defended, um, the outdoor community. And, uh, yeah, I just saw it as a necessary part of growing my brand, if you will, in the outdoor space. Um, so I, yeah, it, it took some learning. It took some getting used to, but I enjoy it now. I get to chat with a lot of fun people. Um, people reach out to me all throughout the year, ask me tips, and I tell them I have no idea what I'm doing. But if you want to do what I do, this is this is what I'm like. I, I've never claimed to be a quote unquote professional, but I'm very happy to share my experiences and and what has worked for me on my hunts. And uh, um, you know over the years I've had quite a few people write back with some pretty cool success stories. And that's, that's my favorite part about social media is, you know, shedding a positive light on the outdoor community, connecting with other like-minded individuals in the outdoors, um, connecting with up and comers, people that kind of want to make their space in the community. And, uh, and yeah, hearing some of these success stories, it makes it really fun. Yeah, for sure. We've had, uh, you know, a few people send us emails or whatever. And we had this one guy like said, Oh yeah, I started elk hunting because you guys' podcast and was successfully harvested my first elk the second year in. And we were just like, right on, man. We still haven't harvested an elk yet, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) at least we're right uh, on now. Yeah, I'm glad we're helping you, but uh, tell us exactly what you did. Yeah, so where were you? And uh, well, that's cool. Yeah, and like the the thing that um, that I find very interesting with you, and and you kind of mentioned is that you kind of spoke up for the outdoor community, and you've also been involved in a lot of other things. Um, one thing that we try not to do is get too much into politics or anything like that on this podcast. But what I guess my question for you is like, what would you say to somebody that like is a hunter or whatever? And it's not like getting involved in some of the issues that we're dealing with when it comes to like gun control, let's say for just a prime example, like what, what, what would you say to somebody like, that's just like, ah, it doesn't bother me. Um, yeah, it's, it's a challenging one without getting too political. And I kind of tiptoe that line as well. I think the big thing is for the long, long time, um, the outdoor community was left alone and people weren't coming for our rights. Um, but if anything, if we've learned anything over the last few years, um, cause I think the outdoor community has said, Oh, we'll just kind of, we'll back off on this one cause we'll give this up, but then they'll leave us alone. And it seems like the opposition, the anti hunters, um, and those people 
they're actually gaining momentum. So as we give up some of these smaller pillars and some of these smaller um, issues, they're seeing that as, oh, we've got the outdoor community against the wall. Let's keep going. And they're, mm-hmm. they're coming after more and more of our rights, more and more of our land access, more and more of our, um, our firearms, everything. And, and it's getting to the point where it's not science-based land management. It's not, um, like the, the decisions they're making on firearms isn't based on historic crime activity or anything like that. And it's not going to have a positive impact that in my mind is, um, no matter where you stand, just it's worth looking into and finding out what's important to you. Um, but yeah, for me, I've, I've started trying to get more involved because I've been exposed to and seen a lot of what's going on. And it's pretty scary, especially as a new father. Um, like I think I'll be able to hunt for the most part for, for quite a few years still, but it's really scary to think about what opportunities are going to be left for my son when it's his turn. Yeah. hundred percent. And like, that's the thing I've had this conversation with like uh, my dad and, and you know, other people and they're like, Oh, I'm not a sports shooter. Like I, I don't have nothing to worry about. And it's like, well, you know, and like, and then you start digging a little bit deeper into some of the issues that we're dealing with here in Canada. And it's just like, Holy shit. Like we, yeah, we do have to get involved as outdoors people and, and, and a whole bunch and like a whole, a big horizon of different issues, not just say gun control or whatever. And the crazy thing is, is like just this week, the Winnipeg sun, I think it was the Winnipeg sun had an article about the moose hunting in Manitoba, for instance, and about how our rights-based hunters want to like more or less take control of that. And, you know, those, those types of issues we deal with as well, because it's like, we have a, we have a problem at all with moose hunting or not necessarily moose hunting with the moose population. How do we fix it? And, um, I often like point the fingers at other people in the outdoor industry, like photographers and hikers and all these people that like to see them. Well, if you like to see them, you still got to get involved. Right. So like Mm -hmm. trying to put those two things together, like you might not, you know, be a sports shooter. You might not, be a duck hunter and you might only have a 22 at home for to shoot a squirrel, but we're all, you know, we're all involved. Yeah. It's not always about just getting out there and hunting it. I mean, it's about, yeah, the sustainability and, and the longevity of these animals on the landscape, what's going on in BC right now with the, you know, the, the people fighting it, the wolf call. It's not about killing wolves. It's about preserving our caribou populations. Um, but people start saying, oh, you just want to kill wolves. It's like, no, wolves have their place in the landscape. But wolves can be removed from an area and reintroduced and very, very quickly and effectively reestablish themselves. Caribou are not that um, what, versatile. Like you can, if, Once they're gone from an area, they're not coming back. And even in some of the places they've been able to reintroduce them, it's extremely, extremely expensive. So um, you know, in some of these areas, it's, it's educating yourself on what's going on behind the scenes and understanding that it's not that we hate wolves. Wolves are beautiful. They're amazing animals. But when they start impacting the other species around them, when, when do we as humans, as hunters, as people that just enjoy the outdoors, when is it important for us to get involved and prevent other species from being erased from our landscape? So mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff that, um, without being political, it's just don't always just read the, the, the catchy headline on some of these articles, do a bit of research behind it and understand the why behind both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and, and that's the thing too here. And, and with it, like getting back to the moose thing in Manitoba, like you talk to some of the, the fellas and, and, and women around here that are outdoors hunting, snowmobiling, fishing, whatever. And they're like, Oh, you know, we got a, we got a black bear and a, and a wolf problem in Northern Manitoba. Like there's, 
tons of black bears and like black bears kill moose calves. And it's just like, you know, some of these other things that we, we definitely need to bring to the table. It's just not, you know, the hunting that's killing the moose. There's a lot of other things and it's forestry and, you know, you can really go down a many rabbit holes and many political rabbit holes, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a crazy world of there. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, this could cover quite a few podcasts if we go down that <laughs> I can be I can be very passionate when I'm provoked. So, well, I'm, I'm pulling back on the reins a little bit right now. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, but yeah, you, you kind of spoke about that care. Like, can you talk about your care hunt or is it going to be like aired on uh, one of these TV shows yeah. coming up? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the caribou hunt was filmed for, for the upcoming season. But yeah, go ahead. Fire away. So, yeah, just give me maybe a little bit of a background on like um kind of switching gears pretty hard here but uh you did mention that your caribou with your with that you shot with the 300 so whereabouts was that like just kind of maybe paint a picture for us where you guys were at yeah um i was like basically the top of the province like right up at the tip top of northern bc close to the yukon border um and it wasn't a fly-in trip we drove up and kind of picked a spot and headed into the mountains from where we were at and um yeah we went into an area we did a bunch of e-scouting i talked to i had a friend with me that had hunted up there in the past and we felt really confident going in there that it was the right spot to get into and then as soon as we arrived um we found some kill sites um and saw a ton of wolf sign didn't see any caribou um saw very limited ungulates like period um in the area but saw a lot of wolves and it was it was kind of it's one thing to hear about how bad the wolves are impacting the populations, but this was a big migratory route. And to see how these wolves were setting up, it was a big corridor and this pack of wolves would get up and I, I hiked up above and I'd watch them. They'd set up on these little, um, there's like little mounds just by chance across this entire valley bottom where they could, each wolf would kind of set up um, as a sentinel on each one. And they created this web almost. And then anytime anything would pass through, including me, they, they, they kind of tried to flank me one day. Um, anytime anything's moving, they would signal each other and they would start, you know, running in towards each other. And then they would go over and, and move towards whatever was coming through. And it kind of makes you realize, okay, seven, I saw seven when I was there, seven wolves, the amount of um, animals they can take down and the amount of animals it's going to take to keep them alive if they're just staying in that one physical area. And then you think that's just seven wolves in that one specific spot, but what's going on in all the other areas around. Um, so I, I ended up actually on that trip. I pulled three wolves out of that group. Um, and then a few days later, after I pulled those three wolves out is when we actually started seeing some animals come through and I was able to take my caribou on that trip. Nice. So, man, I, there's a bunch of things I want to talk about now. <laughs> open this conversation up. I'm going to go back to e-scouting. Um, what are you using for e-scouting? And like, like, yeah, like, what do you do for that? I know we talk about it quite a bit on the podcast, but like, what are you doing out there? <clears throat> yeah. Um, and, and I won't sit here and claim to be like the ultimate, um, you know, e-scouter with all the information. What I use, I use all the resources I have available. The, the mapping service I've been using lately is the Onyx. Um, app, I found that they have some really good, um, mapping systems. I really like, and also their e-scouting, they have an additional program you can get. So you can highlight a map based on elevation, based on degrees of slope, things like that. So if you're taught, so I talk to a lot of friends and I contact people. I was like, what, what kind of areas are these animals going to be hanging out? And they'll say, oh, you know, Southern exposure, 60 degree grade, this, that, and the other. And you can kind of enter that and it'll, sh you look at a, a map area. 
and it'll show you the highlighted areas where most of those pockets are going to be. So then I can take that and I focus on specific areas. I'm like, okay, that looks like a path or a route where these animals are going to be moving through because it's going to have a lot of the habitat that they like to be in. And then, uh, and then you kind of just throw a dart at a map. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I pick out some different areas. I I very rarely go into a spot and just say, this is 100% where I'm going to focus. I'll have my primary spot. Um, you know, if I know people that have hunted the area, obviously I'll pick their brain a bit or people that have hunted similar areas. I'll say, you know, what type of landscape features were you looking out for? And then, um, on my maps, I'll go in and I'll kind of go, okay, this is my primary point of focus. These are some of the secondary and tertiary spots I'll check out. Yeah. Um, Joe, I, this is a tough one for me because I know you'd probably beat my ass if I ever said, Hey, this is an eye hunter podcast. This is an eye hunter podcast. I'm going to have to like, when you say Onyx, I'm just going to say eye hunter Boop. over top. <laughs> yeah, you can. Uh, we'll bleep them or, out. Yeah, bleep just, out the word. Just, yeah. just cut it out because I'm, I'm partnered with Onyx. So if, if they say, if I say eye hunter and they hear that, they're going to shoot me. So we can, we can work around it or just take out, take out what feature I said or what I said and we'll, we'll make yeah. it work. <laughs> right on um and then yeah then kind of getting back to the back to the wolf side of things sorry april if i'm taking up all the questions i'm just kind of geeking out right now like um, he like ran away with things and i wanted to ask questions about other stuff well just, just he always butt, says this to me joe in. um the, yeah the wolf thing that's super cool so they they were kind of set up and 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 they were kind of in my mind like just the way you kind of were describing it they were kind of hunting the way you're hunting, right? Like you were set up watching the same area they're watching, right? So similar hunting tactic. Yeah, it was kind of interesting to be honest. Um, you know, you're you're competing with other predators in an area and they have an advantage because they spend their time up there day in and day out, whereas you're kind of the newbie on the block. Um, so yeah, like getting into position on them and understanding how to outsmart them and ultimately take three out of the area is a challenge because they have, in a sense, some of the upper hand, knowing the area and knowing what they're up against. Um, so that that was interesting being in that area. I mean, there was there was two monster grizzlies up there too that I saw. Which uh, so I, you know, you're not the only predator when you're up hunting some of that country. Right. Um, and yeah, it was I, in a weird way. Like I said, I I'm not a an anti wolf guy. I enjoy watching wolves. I think they're beautiful and. I kind of enjoyed sitting there and watching them, but at the same time, in the back of my mind, I, I enjoyed it. I watched them, but I was like, this is really cool, but I'm going to take some of you guys out pretty soon. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> create the balance. Yeah. And, and, and those wolves, do you think that they were like local, like a, a wolf, local pack that were there for maybe years or, or generations? Or do you think they're following the, the caribou migration? So I spoke with a few other people that, um, had hunted kind of in that area and they said going back like 20 years um, or 15, 20 years in those areas, you would see the wolves travel through with the migration. Whereas these wolves, based on what I saw for a sign, based on what I saw for like, they had a den area that I located and some of the kill sites had been there for quite a while and, and how they were set up consistently on the same spot. I'm quite confident that they were resident wolves, at least for a significant amount. Maybe they move on seasonally, but it seems like that's, where they head to that time of year for sure. Um, which was different than what I had heard from some of the other people that hunted the area. They said typically the the wolves were more migratory. Um, so yeah, I don't know what led to them being kind of localized in that area, but they definitely seemed more of, of a resident pack than transient. 
I wonder I wonder if they have enough memory that if they are seasonal or if they are following a herd so say the herd comes to this area that you were in Joe and they're going to you know maybe they're going to stay there for a period of time I wonder if wolves can move with the herd stay in certain areas for a period of time and remember specific spots like that where they would have the upper hand over the herd. I wonder if that's a thing. I, I mean, wolves are extremely intelligent and I would not put that past them at all. Um, one of the wolves I shot was collared and I turned the collar in and I was really hoping I'd be able to get some of that information um, because obviously in my mind, I have these hypotheses of, of, of what these wolves did and what their lives were like. But if there's a collared animal, I'm like, okay, well, it would be really cool to get a little bit more information, see how, you know, accurate my thoughts were or how inaccurate I was. Um, mm-hmm. But to this day, I have not been able to get in touch to get any of the information, which kind of sucks. Aww. But if anybody's listening and, you know, you're the individuals I turned the caller into, answer my call. If you're listening to this episode, we know you love local and so do we. That's why we're going to encourage you to check out your local co-op. Co-op is in over 600 communities across Western Canada with over 2 million members. Co-ops are a member-driven organization that serve the local community. You can check out co-ops for all your food, fuel, home and construction, as well as agricultural needs. A membership costs you $10 to get in, and you're going to see that back in equity. You don't need a membership to shop at Co-op but you'd be missing out on all the equity and most importantly your say and how that company runs. For groceries, if you want to shop online, you can check it out online at shop.crs and select markets. There's hundreds of local products sourced and packaged all across Western Canada and even free cookies for children in store at the deli counter. If you're looking at a home and building experience, they have local experts available to help with any plant, large or small, and free home and garage blueprints available for online download. Their gas stations are not just a great place to stop for fuel, but also for snacks and a recharge. They're available all across Western Canada, voted the cleanest bathrooms, they have full service at most locations, and car washes at most locations. On the egg side, Co-op's been in the business since 1930, and has continued to lead the way in not just energy products needed for seeding, harvesting, and everything in between, but also in the growing inventory of high quality products, including crop inputs and feed that co-op manufactures and distributes. Co-op's private label production selection is growing every year, providing growers with the high quality products they expect from the name they trust. Co-op also offers a range of fuel, lubricant, and propane products and also provides farm buildings, grain bins, bulk fuel, fuel tanks, livestock equipment, fencing, and heaters. Wherever you are, be sure to check out your local co-op because they have it all. I guess it's yeah. not not quite like goose hunting where you send in your little band number and they give you some information right away. No, no, it's not. Um, and I think it also depends on what type of collar, um, what type of governing body it was that, that collared the animals. So. Right. Yeah, there's some crazy stories out there, like even Chase, uh, who is the helicopter pilot, worked with lots of biologists, collaring wolves and caribou, etc. And, you know, he's he's got some wild stories from, like, wolves up in northern Manitoba going all the way down to, like, the North Dakotas and over into yeah. Ontario in, like, six months. Like, they, some of them, oh. transient wolves can cover some ground, man. 
Yes. Yeah, you want to feel, uh, you know, inadequate, like go up into some of that country and watch like wolves, caribou or moose and watch how like you get to the top of a range or get into a location. You're like, man, I, I cooked it today. I got up here. This has been a grind. And you can watch a wolf or a caribou or something, do it in 20 minutes. And it just took you like the better part of half a day. And, and they're just like, poof, gone. And so it really, it makes you realize like if these animals aren't comfortable in an area or if they're not getting what they need, they can cover ground so fast. And it's really not that much because it's not like, you know, they got to get back to their truck and do whatever. Like they just pick up and if they want to be somewhere else, they just start going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's really, really cool. I've seen the um, satellite image, like the collared GPS location images of how, how a pack actually um, respects another pack's area and like they'll dip mm-hmm. into it just a tiny bit and then they come back out. Right. And then this one will dip into another one just a tiny bit and then they'll come back out. And for the most part, they like respect their areas, even though they're in such a like they w- what I would call a small area for them. There could be multiple packs and they will respect each other's space. I think it's kind of like guys or you know, not guys, but guys and gals in fishing spots, right? It's like, this is my fishing spot. If you're, if you're not here today, I might go fish that one hole that's real close, but yeah. I don't want to get caught fishing your fishing hole because I know it's not going to end well. It's <laughs> a perfect analogy, actually. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm just thinking uh, about the tournament this weekend, and I'm like, I'm. if you're not at your spot, too, too bad for you, man. <laughs> yeah. Or the Ooh. bird gets the worm. You're the aggressive wolf. <laughs> yeah. Um, so caribou hunting. So you get out into this area, northern BC. What do you? What do you, is there any specific caribou that you're you're going for? Like is a big bull? Like what what type time of the season was it? What did that look like? Yeah. Um, so I was going. Um, so kind of when you pick these areas, there's resident caribou that'll be in certain areas, and then you're, there's times where you go and you try and get the transient, like you catch part of the migration. The migration can be a challenge because if you don't time it up right, there's either going to be a bunch there or nothing. But we we picked an area that we kind of um, expected there to be a heavy migration coming through there. And I went a little later in September. Um, and that was kind of the, the goal going into there. So, yeah, and um, at that, that point in time or at any point in time in BC, it's a mature bull. So it's got to be uh, – so the kicker at the base, at the back of the caribou, uh, antler like part way up there will be a kicker that kind of looks like a thumb coming off the back it could be longer but there's a little point that comes off the back and they either need five above the kicker or they need six at the top in the paddle of, of legal points so um so it's just a mature bull caribou is what you're going for at that time of year and that's full velvet no so when i was there we were past full velvet uh velvet's okay. kind of more the early season hunt um i guess when i was there you could still bump into some velvet like i saw some immature bulls um that still had a little bit of velvet on that hadn't rubbed off but like my bull had a broken off piece of an antler tip in his foreshank so he was wow. he was past velvet and he was into scrapping season for sure nice um yeah, it is crazy. So for anybody that hasn't caribou hunted or knows how to caribou hunt, how, how do you go about hunting them? Are you just spot and stock? Like, how, like, what do you do there? Like, clearly you can't call them. Can you like, I, I, I don't no, know. You can't no. no, you can't call them. Uh, I mean, maybe you can, I just, I don't know where I'd begin calling. I don't think <laughs> it's the type of species you call. It's a lot of glassing. So, um, it's a lot of like barren ground type areas. Um, 
thinking kind of like alpine spruce and low brush type areas and then also shale slides with the mountain caribou so a lot of the time you're just picking high points you're getting up nice and high and you're spending a lot of time on the on the glass and um sometimes you're looking and you're like okay there's nothing here and then you'd be surprised like caribou are big but how easily when they bed down even if they've got you know a big rack on top they disappear really quick and with that country it's it looks wide open, but for how wide open it is, there's just enough rolls and kind of indentation in the landscape that they can hide quite well. So it's a lot, a lot of time on the glass. And then when you see them, you have to move. Because I mentioned caribou can cover ground. And it, unless they're bedded or in an area just feeding, if they get up and start walking, um, like they just cover ground so fast, it, it's overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never hunted the mountains or like never really did like the glassing or spot and stock that way. Um, how many, like how hard is it to make that decision when you do see something and you're like, okay, that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for. But like, I only have an hour until dark. Like, do you have to make some really tough decisions some days or what? You make some really tough decisions and I'll admit you make some really stupid decisions sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like there was one night um, we saw a bull moose and he was three and a half miles away. Uh, and we were already wow. probably six, five or six miles from camp and he was three and a half miles away. And, um, I it was me and my camera guy, my poor camera guy looked at me and he saw the look in my eye and he just went, this is going to be a long night. And I took <laughs> off running and we closed the distance. Here's the kicker. We closed the distance. I get into position. I get my gun out and I got the moose in my crosshairs and I look at my camera guy and I'm like, nope, it's not the bull for us. And I put my gun down <laughs> and he's like, are you kidding me? We came all this way and you're not even going to shoot it. But I, I had seen a better uh, bull in the area. Um, and um, to be perfectly honest, I had misjudged it. When I first saw it, I made a quick decision. I said, look, cover distance and uh, got into, it was a beautiful bull. It just, um, because of where it was, it would have probably taken two and a half days of heavy hauling to get the moose out of there. And I just oh, yeah. thought for, I, my primary goal was caribou. So I didn't want to give up two and a half days on for that caliber of a bull moose. But, uh, yeah, it's, you, you learn how to judge your, your ability to cover ground and your ability to close the distance to an animal pretty quickly. You learn how to judge landscape and, um, you learn how to judge your, um, I guess your, your willingness to suffer. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're like a lot of the time when you go, you're like, yeah, I know I'm not getting home until, two or three tonight, but, uh, you just, when you're hunting that country, it's like that animal, like I said, they can cover so much ground. If you don't get a look at it that day, it could be 15, 20 miles away tomorrow. Yeah. Um, Joe, I have a question for you. So how much of your like mental preparation and your mental training from when you played in the CFL comes into play now when you're making decisions and deciding how far you can push yourself when you're hunting. Um, it, it's funny you ask that. So growing up, I did a lot of hunting and fishing and my dad really would push us pretty hard in the back country for hunting. My dad was always the one chirping guys that truck hunt. Like you got to get out, you got to hike. And I was a fat kid and I hated him for it, but he made me get out and hike. And I always said, when people asked me when I was a football player, it's, you know, where do you get your toughness from? Where do you get your grit? Where do you get your, 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 your kind of mindset from? And I said, I got it from hunting with my dad. And, um, and that, so my mindset that I took from hunting with my dad grew into my mindset that grew and matured and adapted in my professional athletic career. And then in turn, I took 
you know, it kind of expanded, expanded, expanded. Now I've taken that again and kind of reintroduced that into my love for the outdoors. And I am a stubborn, miserable, grumpy, boneheaded prick when it comes to being in the bush. Like I've had some camera guys that do not like me because I can push it pretty hard, but my willingness to suffer out there to accomplish a goal is, um, I would like to think it's up there among the top for some of these people. Like, I'm not saying I'm the toughest guy in the bush. Don't get me wrong. I'm no David Goggins or nothing. But uh, when when I see something, I'm willing to put in the work to make something happen for sure. Yeah. And you know what? I, I follow you on Instagram and I see you're like running miles in the rain and I'm like eating my popcorn. Like, what the hell is this guy doing <laughs> running in the rain for? going to get wet. It's, it's uh, it, yeah, I like this. I mean, it's the old mo- mentality, right? Like the, the pack out, you're, you're packing an animal out and it only seems tough if you haven't had a worse pack out than that. So every time I have a terrible pack out now where, you know, you pack an elk out and you get back to camp at 630 in the morning. Well, next time I pack an elk out and if I shoot it in the morning and I get it out, even if it's a, you know, an eight hour pack out, but I get back and I'm like, it's only midnight. Like at least I'm not at six in the morning. Right. So it's, it's all by comparison. So the more you prepare yourself and get yourself in these shitty, miserable situations and get through it, you're like, well, if I got through that, this is going to be nothing. So, um, the, the long and short of it is, yeah, exposing yourself to really shitty stuff makes everything else seem easier. So I guess I like exposing myself to really shitty situations. <laughs> so yeah. by comparison, when, when the shit hits the fan, I'm like, eh, at least it's not this trip. That's right. Yeah, for sure. I have a, it's, I think it's a kind of funny story and I've said it on the podcast, but I'll tell you it, Joe. Um, but we were moose hunting up in Churchill and uh, we were hunting like two or three days and we were on to some moose, but it was quite a ways from like where we're, we're have, where we had our camp and we had this little um, like thermometer thing. And uh, anyways, the one morning we woke up and it's still dark. We woke up, had breakfast and we we're like getting dressed and get going out the door and my cousin looks at the thing. And he says, "Oh God, it's minus fifty-two out," and this is like December moose, like late season moose hunting. And I looked at him like, "Ah, oh, could be worse." He's like, "How could it be worse?" I'm like, "Could be minus fifty-three." <laughs> we had like you know a good shuffle about that, but it's just like one of those things, right? It's always could be worse out in the bush as long as you're out hunting. Dude, minus 52, you've got some freaking cojones if you guys are going out hunting minus 52. That might be one of those days where I look outside and go, you know what? My sleeping <laughs> bag looks cozy today. Yeah. Um, but at this, I, I mean, on the same vein, I was out on a moose hunt and uh, we had uh, strangest weather front come in and it was plus 15. And oh, all yeah. the moose pushed it, all the moose pushed into the thick timber. And nothing would come out in the open. And we were just sitting there going, man, I'm praying for a cold front. So it just shows you like, yeah, it, it could always be worse, but minus 52, man, I, uh, I don't know about that one. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a tough hunt. I mean, we would go, we'd hunt all like obvious daylight and, uh, our, like our snowmobiles wouldn't shut off. We didn't stop for lunch. So we didn't like, we just put on miles and look for, try to cut tracks or whatever. Right. Like it was a tough hunt. It was really cold, but it, it's one of those things I can look back on now and been like, yeah, I did it. I did it. Like I was out there. We seen moose. Then get one, but <laughs> um, I, Shelly, I want to change gears on you since I might have to leave us quick. That's fine. I'm going to go back to caribou hunt anyways. I'm sorry. You can go back to caribou hunting after. Um, I'm, I'm more excited about a different hunt that uh, Joe and Steve did. So Joe, I want to ask you a couple questions about your Argentina heat episode. 
Um, my husband and I are going to Argentina in April coming up here and Amazing. we're super excited and we're doing black buck. I'm doing black buck fallow. He's doing sheep and a stag and we're just like totally jacked. So I want to know like, yeah. what are we getting into? You're trying to geek out. Yeah. <laughs> You're getting into an amazing experience. I've been down to Argentina twice now. Um, and everything about the trip, other than the original flight over, is amazing. Yeah. It's just a long flight. Uh, and you just have to stop in Chile and take your bags off and put it back on. So it's frustrating. But Argentina itself is amazing, beautiful people, beautiful culture. Um, and then which area are you hunting? Are you kind of hunting we're, the La Pampa area? Or? Yeah. Yeah. We're staying with uh, Katina. Okay. Uh, yeah, like it's a ton of fun. The animals there are beautiful. It's a different landscape. The underbrush is prickly. So make sure you're wearing some like tough, like you want something that can breathe, but like I had knee pads on my pants and I am very grateful for those knee pads because there's these little thorns they are kind of like, they call them rosettas mm -hmm. and they're basically like the burrs from hell and they will get absolutely it. everywhere and <laughs> stick you everywhere. So <laughs> and, almost and like a pair of like upland sorry almost a pair of like of upland brush pants yeah something like that's not a bad idea um and some gators i would recommend gators it's hot but you still want gators just so nothing's getting in your boots there's scorpions there's oh. pit vipers there's some other stuff i mean scorpions you'll have in your showers but they're as long as just keep check your boots every morning i highly recommend but the snakes and stuff you probably won't bump into them too much but but when it comes to the actual animals and the hunt itself it's such a cool experience. I really hope you get into the roar. Like when the stags are roaring, yeah. it's such a haunting call. It's similar to an elk in, in, you know, how it goes down, what's causing it and all of that. But the sound itself is just such a different sound. Mm -hmm. and it's cool and i'm sure at that time of year you'll definitely be in the roar so yeah i do believe when brennan started mm -hmm. talking to them to kind of plan our timing he had asked mm -hmm. them um if there was any space or you know when we should be looking at to get to get in at the time when they're still roaring yeah yeah oh so no it, we'll see it. it's it's a fun hunt i've been there twice and i was actually just talking with my friend who was there um with me on both trips and we were just saying you know what like you kind of feel goofy always going back to the same places and we were saying like you know what we've been there twice but we should probably start talking about going back to argentina again because it's just mm. such a fun enjoyable experience culturally um hunt wise everything you're, you guys are in for an absolute treat yeah we took uh we're taking two days approximately two days when we get into just sort of just sort of sightsee a little bit we're flying or we're getting into bonus aries and staying there and then hopefully sightsee a little bit and then we get like taken out to the to the lodge so yeah i i actually hope that i we're both taking our bows and then he oh. has he's kind of been like well you know we're we have four animals and i think we only have four days so it's, you know, we're probably going to get split up, but I hope that I shoot my two yeah. so that I can go with him for his stag. Cause I just want to see even it if, and I want to take pictures. Yeah. Even if, um, depending on where you're hunting, like for us in some of the areas, um, I don't know, again, I don't know the exact area you're going, but you might still hear the stag, even if you're not specifically targeting them. Um, so hopefully either way, hopefully you get to see them, but I mean, and enjoy the food. Um, bring stretchy pants for the ride home because the food there is oh, unbelievable. <laughs> like, oh gosh. Like, yeah, you're hiking, you're hiking a lot, you're covering a lot of ground, but just mm -hmm. 
their 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 barbecuing and their meat and their sauces and their seasoning and everything. Oh my, like, yeah, bring stretchy pants or you know a pair of jeans that are two sizes up. Just very very highly recommend that for the ride home. Oh man. <laughs> That sounds great. I'm actually, I really, <laughs> I really like food, Joe. So that sounds awesome. Although the only thing about me is I don't fly really well. So I have to medicate myself to fly. So, but on the way down, like as soon as the medication wears out of me, I'm like, feed me immediately. So uh, that'll be great. Oh yeah. <laughs> Just give me so like anywhere. Stuff. Like they have like true, like you go to any little shop and like the steaks they bring you are like oh. the monsters, like just big really? and just, the beef and everything there is really delicious. And, um, where you're hunting, they'll probably serve you a bunch of wild game options as well. And the wild mm -hmm. game that they cook down there, it's, they use the seasoning from the area and stuff. And I mean, it's some of the best and the wood, I, I'm not sure what kind of wood it is that they use on their grills, but the wood they use has such a nice taste to it as well. Mm -hmm. What's, um, what's the hunting actually like, like, I don't know, give me, give me a, paint me a picture. Like what's going to happen here? Yeah, where we hunted, it was kind of flatland. Um, so there are some areas that are a bit more mountainous, um, but it was a lot of flatland. So we, you head out, we would head out about um, probably 45 minutes before daylight. Mm -hmm. And we would just kind of hike along, kind of like when you're elk hunting and you're just listening for calling. Um, so for example, with the stag, you're listening for the calls and then you try and close distance because as the sun's coming up, the heat's rising. And if you're, if we were in the heat wave, as you mentioned with the title of the show, um, so they would shut up pretty quick as soon as they hit. So you want to be close into their area. So then you can either get them fired up enough or get them calling from their bed or close in on their areas. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of still hunting, um, uh, kind of low hanging brush with kind of some visibility up like four or five feet. So you're bending over, looking and crouching and crawling along a lot. The, it's dry there. So the ground's pretty loud. So it's a lot of like a lot of practice for still hunting. Um, you'll probably end up shooting off sticks. The guides will carry sticks for you to shoot off of. Um, but it's a lot of like really fun. Like you hike a little bit, then you glass and you're picking out small details through the trees. It's not perfectly open. Black buck country is a little more open. Um, but that's yeah, just a lot of covering ground, really cool vegetation. Um, yeah, we would do kind of two hunts a day. We would get up at four, four thirty in the morning, have a quick coffee and breakfast, hunt until about nine thirty, come back, you would eat have a few drinks, have a lunch, then you'd sleep for about four or five hours and you'd get up and do a second hunt in the evening after you had that nap, kind of in the, the later part of the day, hunt right up until last light, come back in, eat, drink again, go to sleep for another four. So you're, you kind of got two days each day and you would hunt, then you would eat, have a few drinks, very social, and then sleep for four, four, yeah, four and a half to five hours. And then you would do the same thing. So by the end of like a week long hunt, it felt like you were there for two weeks. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like my deer hunting season. <laughs> I, I do breakfast, have a few drinks. I do remember reading about like this, this like midday nap thing. And I'm like, Brendan, how I don't, I don't do naps. Like, what am I going to do? Yo, it, the first day, uh, I think for the, and to be perfectly honest, the first day or two days I was there, I was struggling with that. And that's when I went out and I was like, you know what? I'm going to have a drink with lunch. <laughs> because you kind of you get that bit of a you have a drink or two and then you get that meal in you and you kind of get okay you know what i can nap and it gets hot outside and depending where you're at our rooms were air conditioned so if it's really like pounding oh. hot outside you've already covered a bunch of ground you have a few drinks you get a meal in you and you're like show me a flat spot and i'm going to close my eyes 
So <laughs> even if you don't sleep, you can kind of trick yourself. And then when you get home, you're like, what do you mean? I don't get a four hour nap in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean this full day nonsense? Yeah. I got to rate somebody about this. Well, I work from home, Joe. So, um, I could probably nap for four days and nobody would know or four hours. There you go. You might, you might come home with a new routine. Yeah. (laughs) That's exciting. I'm just so, did you guys hunt anything else besides stag when you were there? Um, Steve took a Asiatic water Buffalo. Um, one time we did, I did a black buck hunt, um, on one day, but I, I had my friend actually shoot first. Um, and then we didn't see another one for me on that trip, but yeah, mostly we focused on stag. We did see uh fallow deer. We saw black buck. Uh, we saw other species, but we were just focusing on the stag first. And, um, yeah, the first trip down I got, I took, well, we got stuck down there with COVID and I ended up taking three stags. I took, I took my target stag, then I took a cold stag. And then there was a really mature stag that was sick and we went out and harvested him. Mm -hmm. Um, and then on my second trip, we hunted right till the end. I had opportunities on a few, but we couldn't time up, you know, getting them on camera and, um, yeah, ended up passing on them. So, um, so are all the hunts kind of similar where like, so the, like the black buck and the stag where you're doing spot and stock for all of them, or are they, are some of them blinds or stands or, uh, so when there was really big heat waves, sometimes um, towards like at first light and right at last light, we would go sit over some watering holes for a little bit um, just because it would get so hot that they would go right into the deep, thick brush. So we'd mm-hmm. say, okay, they're going to have to drink water at some point. So we did spend some time sitting over watering holes. I never harvested anything by a watering hole. My shot opportunities always came during the spot and stock. Right. Um, but I do know that. And then also depending where you're at, sometimes they'll offer you uh, hog hunting because they have the Russian boars there. And those um, can sometimes be like, you sit through the night. So you're allowed over there, you're allowed to shoot by the light of the moon, so long as you're not using a flashlight. Um, So you actually sit there, you'll have to like close your eyes for five minutes, let your eyes adjust and you wake up and you're sitting in a blind, staring at a watering hole and the moon's pounding and it almost looks like daylight at that point. And you're waiting for these hogs to come into the watering hole. And, um, at least when we went down the group we were with, we could have hunted hogs every night, but at some point I said, well, I kind of need to sleep at night as well. (laughs) But, and those, if you get a hog down the, the, I talk about barbecuing the beef and everything, that hog meat, the the Russian boar meat, when they barbecue there and they have a local chimichurri they make, Mm -hmm. um, I would fly back to Argentina just for a plate of that meat. Tell you that right now. That meat is so good. And the seasoning they use. Yeah. So hog and local chimichurri. Yes. Yes. I'm if you can get them to do it down. over the fire, if they can do the hog over the fire for you, uh-huh. um, like the, for us, the group we were with, they said, anytime you see one, um, just shoot it and we'll, we'll barbecue for it. It doesn't count towards your hunt or anything like that. So oh, wow. if we were hunting and you know, you see a hog, our guides were like, dude, shoot because the guys get to partake in the, the barbecuing and everything too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. And it's like, I'm telling you the fat on it, the meat, everything is, my stomach, I don't know if you can hear it, but my stomach's growling right now just talking about it. <laughs> That's so cool. I'm I'm yeah. really excited. Is there any, like, info you can give me on, like, prep for, yeah, prep. What should we be doing to make sure that, or to, like, what should we be doing so that we are doing our best to be successful? I mean, I know you can't, you can't make a stag step out in front mm-hmm. of you, but how do we prep ourselves the best? I would just say, um, based on the vegetation, I'd say probably get comfortable with kneeling shots. 
Um, so you're, there's a good chance you'll end up kneeling for a shot. Um, some of the rifle shots are quick shots. Like you got to be able to quickly adapt. Um, but uh, all in all, it, it's constant hiking, constant covering ground, or you're sitting when you're not sitting over the watering holes and stuff. But it's not steep country. It's not steep climbs. It's not overly strenuous. It's just consistent. Um, you're going to need to drink a lot of water when you're there because it's pretty easy to get dehydrated and not notice it. But uh, I, I would say, like, it's, it's a great hunt that you, as long as you're comfortable and confident with your bow or your rifle, um, it, it's not one of those hunts where it's like, if, if you don't show up and you haven't been training for it for six months, you're going to, you're going to fall short. I think it's one of those hunts that's very accessible for everybody. Um, and it's a great hunt that, you know, the old, young, everybody just, to be honest, just go down there and enjoy it. And um, yeah, like <laughs> you're, you're in for a great hunt. I don't think it takes a ton of preparation. Um, just be confident with your shot. And mm. other than that, you're in for a treat. I'm super excited. What, um, what would you say would have been like one of your farthest shot distances down when I was in Argentina? Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the areas they have these, these, uh, laneways opened up and we had a beautiful stag run across it one day. He was at about 450 or 500 yards and he kind of ran across chasing a, a hind and stopped and beautiful stag standing there and I'm looking at my guy. I'm like, dude, can I shoot this thing? And he's like, no, no, no. And then afterwards he's like, that's too far because out there ammunition is extremely expensive in Argentina. Mm-hmm. So they don't do a lot of target practicing. They don't do a lot of long range shooting. So they're like hundred mm-hmm. yards and in is what they're confident with. So make sure you tell your guy, if you're confident with long range shooting, mm-hmm. let them know. Cause afterwards he goes, well, how long are you comfortable shooting? And I told him, I was like, I shoot steel out to like 12, 1500 yards. And his eyes were pie plates and he's like, wait, so you could have shot that? I'm like, yeah, that wasn't even like a, that wouldn't have scared me at all. And, and all of a sudden he was like, oh man, he kind of realized, right? So communicate with them. Um, and that's actually speaking of the guys, there's going to be a language barrier potentially. Um, mm-hmm. I recommend downloading Google Translate or a translating okay. app on your phone. And then a lot of the time in the heat of the moment, they'll really start so like our guys would be like shoot 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 as soon as a, a big stag walks out and it if it's not the stag or the animal you want you're able to say like no i don't want that one then they'll go okay we'll go find another one right um but don't feel like overly pressured and don't let them hype you up or get you off your game one of my buddies that was with us ended up missing because his guide was like yelling in his ear shoot 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 he's like ah and he rushed his shot right. um so they get excited just like you. And I think for them, it's a big part of making sure that they're successful. They want to mm-hmm. keep their outfitter happy and all of that stuff. So um, well, communicate with them expectation on, on animal class first and then yeah. make sure you verify for yourself. So don't shoot and then go, oh, heck, this isn't what I wanted. Right. Yeah. So how do they like if you say because I know there's like. I mean, we looked at the the menu for the like animals and and uh, like the huge stag was like a six hundred stag is a lot of money. So and Brennan so has like a, a yeah. place where he's like happy. But how do you? So if you're out in the bush and there's like a stag that comes running out of the brush and everybody's telling you to shoot, like how do they know? How, how do, do they like score it in their heads so that you're not taking a six hundred? And paying forty five thousand dollars. That's not so. Where we hunted, we were in a completely free range, low fence area, um, and it was the, the because they're completely transient animals. It's if if you see the the monster kind of like Roosevelt elk looking stag, that 
cost the same. You just, you get one animal. You could shoot a spike oh. or you could shoot a monster um, because it was completely free range. Now, some of the other areas, depending on that, if they've kind of raised them a bit or, or whatever, then yeah, you sometimes have to pay by class. So for example, if we went out and we did the, uh, the Asiatic water buffalo hunt for those, even though it's still part of the low fence area, you still, you pay by class. Mm-hmm. Um, and you basically have to communicate with, make sure you talk with the guide, like the owner and then your guide as well and communicate with both of them, what your expectations are. Because if you've communicated with the owner and told them, this is what it is, like, I'm not spending more than that. And then the guide himself tells you to shoot. It's mm-hmm. on the guide at that point, And it's not you. But if your guide tells you not to shoot, you probably shouldn't shoot. Because if you do shoot at that point, then you are on the hook. So, right. um, yeah, that no, that's a good question, actually. Yeah. Great. Well, that's a lot of super, super helpful information, Joe. Thank you. Do better, yeah. Joe is Argentine and guidingbusiness.com. Yeah, right? We got a new new website. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always happy to ask questions. If I've been somewhere and can offer insight, like I said, it's um, like I've gone into a lot of these situations green and, and had to learn things myself. So, yeah. and then now that it's kind of a wider network in the industry, I reach out to a lot of people and I mentioned I always kind of cast a large web before I go somewhere and ask as many people. So, like if I can be that resource for people, you know, any of you guys listening and you, you're going on a hunt and you know I've done it, feel free to shoot me a line and um, I'll try and get back to you and offer any insight I can for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might you might end up getting a message or two from us, Joe. And no, this, is why, this is why this is why this is why you're the on here for the third time because you're just such a nice goddamn guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That makes me feel warm and fuzzy. I think you guys are nice too. <laughs> okay, April, are you done with your Argentina questions? I guess. All right, I got to get back to this uh, caribou hunt. All the listeners are probably like, what the hell? Um, but I got to know, kind of give me the first few moments before pulling the trigger on your caribou. Like, um, what happened? Uh, yeah, so that was, it was an interesting hunt. Um, I ended up, I, well, first and foremost on the hunt, I had taken out some wolves. I got my stone sheep because I mentioned there were so many wolves in the area. I pushed out to a big, far distant area. Cause I was just covering new ground. I was like, well, if the caribou aren't here, they gotta be somewhere else. And I ended up finding some stone sheep. I got my Ram who was a, like an absolute dream stone oh, sheep boy. Ram. Um, gorgeous, gorgeous Ram. That was a great hunt. But, uh, then we went back to focusing on, uh, caribou. Um, and we got a crazy storm front that pushed in like a very low ceiling fog where you couldn't see more than 15 yards. And, it stuck around for about two and a half days and we would hike high and, and look and you, there was no visibility anywhere. And it was absolutely demoralizing because we had been working so hard and, um, you know, when you can't see, like, what are you going to do? Sit on a random spot and hope a caribou bumps into you. So we kind of, we, I think we hunkered down in the wall tent for two, two and a half days and we were running out of wood. Tough to find nice wood up there because it's all that nasty Alpine spruce. It's not good for anything. And, uh, one morning I woke up and I was like, you know what? I'm just sick and tired of sitting in the tent. And I was with Jesse, my camera guy. And I was like, we're just going to start hiking and we're going to go to an area where I'd seen, I mentioned I'd seen a really nice moose. And I said, we're going to go over there and I'm going to set up and I'm going to try and call this moose into like 20 yards <laughs> just cause I can't sit in the tent anymore. So I was like, we're going to, and it's like a five mile hike to where that was. Like, we're just going to go to this spot and set up and see if we can call a moose in just to do something. And, uh, so we're hiking along and covering ground and him and I like just 
emotions, mindset, everything. Like I'm talking like in the gutter, like just we're wasting time. Why are we here? We should be home with our families, this, that, and the other. Um, and I'm hiking along and all of a sudden, as we neared this one, we had to go over a bit of a high spot to get to where the moose was or where we had last seen it. And I looked up and I was like, I looked at Jesse, I'm like, dude, does that almost kind of look like some glimpse of light coming through this ceiling over here? And he's like, yeah, actually, man, that kind of looks like there could be a break. So we started hiking towards that opening. Um, and still, like, it's that moisture in the air where it's so thick that, like, it looks like you're, it's raining because everything's soaked just from that moisture. And we're hiking along and still kind of bummed out. And then all of a sudden, you can see a silhouette of uh, a ridge. And I'm like, dude, there's, there's like open sky up there. And both of us are looking like, this can't be real. This can't be real. <laughs> like, pinch me. So we keep hiking and climbing. And I'm starting to get like a little bit of a, you know, pepping my step, I'm, I'm getting a smile on my face again. And I'm like, okay, hey, well, even if we can get up here and see some small breaks, then all of a sudden it's like, you know, what? you're taking off in a plane and you, you crest through those clouds. And it's like yeah. this thick layer that like you could drink it with a straw and we're coming up and our head popped through. And I'm like, dude, not only is it open, like it is bluebird up here, like absolute crisp bluebird skies. <laughs> and I look at him like, dude, the caribou must be thinking what we're thinking. Like if it sucks down low, they're going to come up and they're going to be, they're, they're called mountain caribou. They're going to be on top of the mountain, like running this stuff. So maybe we'll be able to catch something. So we started hiking and I think it was 20 or 25 minutes after cresting through the fog. And I'm looking, I'm like, dude, this is the best. We at least get to see stuff today. We get to hunt. And in my mind, I'm like, we're still not probably not going to kill anything today. Then we come around a corner and I look up and above us skylined, like something out of a fairy tale. There's a lone bull caribou standing on this beautiful ridge. And I look up and I'm like, pinch me. This can't be real. And I look over my shoulder and Jesse's got his head down. He's hiking, keeping up with me. I'm like, dude, there's a caribou right there. Like, get down, hit the dirt. So we both hit the dirt. I throw the spotter up and I'm counting. And like right away in the spotter, I'm like, there's five on the one side. And he's got a kicker. Like, this thing is legal. (laughs) Like the first caribou we're seeing today and this thing's legal. There's no way. And I look over, I'm like, Jesse, this thing's legal. So I start getting my gun out. I pull my Kestrel and I'm, I start dialing my scope. I think it was right around 400 yards or just under 400 yards. So I start dialing my scope and I get my gun on the tripod. And, and then Jesse still laughed about it because I stopped and I pulled my, my earplugs out. And like, we've been hunting this whole time and I stop and I take enough time to put my earplugs in. He's like, dude, if you've ever, like, my 300's got a pretty nasty muzzle break on it. So yeah, I get set up get on the gun and um, like just, I can still see it vividly in my mind. Just one of the most beautiful picturesque moments, skylined, like ridgeline, bull caribou, bluebird sky behind him. And then below us, the fog is still coming up in waves and washing against the face we're on. And it's still like coming in and going out. And then I squeeze my shot off uh, perfect heart shot. He took like six steps and then he, he hit him. He hunched up right away, took a few steps forward. And then you could tell he just stopped in his tracks and kind of went down ass first and bed down. And you could just see the lump of his body with the rack sticking there, still perfectly skyline. Nice. And if you, if you either, if you watch wild TV or if you download the app and watch it on there and stream it, like you will see me go from a grumpy, miserable, like old guy to a five-year-old that just got an ice cream cone in the blink of an eye. And I start like my hands are shaking. I think I even do a little jig 
And I'm just like, I ran over, I hugged Jesse. I'm falling all over, just like mind blown that it just played out the way it did. Cause I mean, I went from the absolute lowest of lows. This is a waste of time. This hunt's not going to pay off, but we got to try and do something just to do something to, I don't think I could have scripted a more beautiful picturesque uh, outcome to that hunt. If I had like sat down for a week and thought, what would I want this to play out like? Right. So, yeah, that's, know. that's, that's a great story. And it's just like, it's even better that you're sitting at camp, just like pouting, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I should just go home. <laughs> and if you just didn't push yourself, you would never have got that opportunity. Just like we were talking about earlier about uh, pushing yourself to get opportunities. Right. So yeah, because cool. there were some other guys, there were some other guys hunting the area and um, nobody else had left camp. We went oh, up yeah. there and they're like, yeah, they, they like I, when I got back, I talked to my buddy and like some guys that were like in the general area, if you have your in reach, you, you know, you send a message, check in with everybody and everybody else is like, yeah, it was a waste of day. We never left camp. And I'm like, dude, I got a sunburn up top when I was skinning out my caribou. <laughs> <laughs> like what you did, what, how does that doesn't make sense? Yeah. That's yeah. great. So, so you went into this area, like obviously with a backpack full of tags you come out of there with a sheep, a caribou, and three wolves. Yeah, it's kind of like I said. Uh, I mentioned like the, the the scene when I shot my caribou was a bit of a fairy tale, but like in hindsight, the whole trip itself was a bit of a fairy tale. And you know, yeah. from my original mindset when I saw the wolves there and everything, it, it at first I was like in the dumps, and then yeah, some of the stuff that came, the way it came together was really just yeah, very very fortunate, very lucky, and it's nice being a resident hunter like because I can, I can have my resident tag. So I get a mitt full of tags and you just make sure you know what's available in the area. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, you have those, those opportunities. So if the caribou aren't panning out, like I could have, I could have in theory shot that moose. I mentioned I hiked in and had that moose in the crosshairs. I didn't shoot him because I said, Oh, this is going to take two and a half to three days to hike this moose out of there. That was the day before that fog rolled in. So I ended up wasting the next three days anyway. So I could have had, <laughs> I could have had three wolves. I could have had a sheep, moose, and my caribou on the same trip. Jesus. You'd have to rent the U-Haul trailer to pull behind your Dodge to get that stuff home. Man, I'm telling you what, like, <laughs> yeah, my, my freezers are looking real pretty right now. Real yeah, pretty. That's great, man. Um, and it was, is that your first mountain caribou or is that, or have you done that hunt before? No, that was my first caribou period. Um, oh, awesome. I've never taken a caribou before. I've, I've talked about doing caribou hunts in the past. I've had some caribou hunts planned that, that, uh, ended up, you know, falling through for one reason or another, or I'd prioritize a different species that year. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've just, I've always wanted to go out and chase them. And, and, uh, yeah, no, that was, that was a really cool experience to finally, put one on the ground and have it play out the way it did. Yeah. The, the one thing that I do notice between you and your wife is they do showcase a lot of the cooking and stuff on your social media, etc. So I, I have to ask if what did that caribou, have you got to eat a bit of it? Like, what was it like? It's so it's funny. A lot of people say that caribou is kind of like, like mountain goat where after a certain time of the year, when they start rutting that the meat turns really gamey and nasty. And everybody kind of says, a lot of people said it's like the September 17th to 20th kind of threshold. And I took my caribou, I'd have to look again, but it was later in the, like, I want to say it was like September 25th to 27th. But, and, and he was obviously rutting because he had a four, he had a antler tip in his foreshank. So he had been fighting. His sides were completely bruised up from fighting. But some of the best, mildest, most beautiful wild game meat I have ever eaten. Um, and for me, like, I love wild game meat. So I would say that, I don't have the most sensitive palate, but 
but I've cooked it for some friends and family and, uh, and everybody else. And, and everybody that's tried it has absolutely loved it. Like we absolutely lucked out with that bowl. And, um, yeah, my son Walker, he calls it Kabu. And for the <laughs> longest time, I, I always ask him like, what do you want? Cause we, he's, he's eaten basically every kind of wild game meat under the sun. And every time I pull meat out of the freezer, he'd look at me and go, Kabu, Kabu, Kabu. Like he just, he loves it and he keeps asking for it. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely delicious, but I, I've heard rumors that it can be nasty at certain times of the year as well. Yeah. I, I think I'm like starting to turn the page on this, uh, there's a bad wild meat out there. Like, I think it's like almost like a myth or maybe not a myth, but maybe it's just like, I know everyone's talked about it, but like maybe the way you prep it, maybe the way you handle it. But like I've, I've shot, you know, deer, moose, elk. I've never had a bad piece of meat. Like I, I've had a tough bull moose before, but it wasn't bad. Like it didn't have a bad taste. You know, I've had mule deer. A lot of guys say mule deer can get gamey, but like I, I honestly got to think it's just the way you cook it nowadays. You, you can make anything taste good in my mind. I uh, I've noticed I have noticed over the years, um, especially if I do shoot an animal in the rut, um, I bring it up. To, I try to bring it up to temperature a little slower, so I don't go right to really really high heat. Um, one thing I also noticed, and we've tested it out a few times, is cooking at high heats with olive oil. Um, seems to bring out that flavor as well. But if you, if you use like a butter, uh, coconut oil, or even rendered bear fat are some things that I've used and those do not bring out that gamey taste. So olive oil oh, and, really? and going to, going to a high heat too fast, um, can, can bring, can actually bring out, like I've tasted, I've made steaks one night and then the next time I cook those steaks from that same animal, I'm like, Oh wow. I can actually taste it a little bit. It's not enough to throw you off, but I'm like, and then I, we started kind of trying to deduce what it was. And those were some of the things that lead to it. Um, and then obviously your choice in spices and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, olive oil and high heat, two things that I've noticed really bring out that gaminess. Oh, that's super interesting. Cause a lot of times when I cook my, uh, food, I get, or my wild meat, I get the old cast iron out, throw some olive oil in there and get her hot, just bucking hot and throw her in. If it works <laughs> so, for you, like, like I said, it's just like, for me, it was, like some of the more late season rutted up animals that I've had that issue, but um, I've, I've, I've noticed it far less with coconut oil, with butter um, and some of those other, some of those other cooking fats. I'm not saying it's going to happen every time you use olive oil, but I've noticed it's more prevalent when I do use the olive oil. Well, that's interesting. And something that I'm going to see if I can keep track of a little bit on my end of things. And you can either call you a liar or not, Joe. How about that? Hey, (laughs) it wouldn't be the first time I've been wrong. You can ask my wife. (laughs) <laughs> uh, that's funny hey joe why don't you uh let our listeners know where they can like find this caribou hunt or that argentina yeah. episode etc uh so the argentina episode was on a previous season but so my show is called the edge i i host it steve and i host it steve Ackman and i host the edge it's available on wild tv either through a linear channel subscription or you can download the wild tv app uh i believe my code's like big joe and you save money if you download the app I'm allowed to hand that one out. It's like Big Joe or Big Joe 10. I should probably check that. I'll get it to you and you can put it in the podcast description if anybody wants. But if yep. you get the app, yeah. you can you can stream it like a Netflix. You don't have to wait for it to go on air. Um, and then if they want to follow along, my Instagram's just Joe underscore Appel. So first underscore last name. Um, and I try and keep people up to date on some of the goofy stuff I'm up to on there as well. Right on. Yeah, we're, we uh, follow you and always uh, find it entertaining. I, I do have one more question for you before we let you go. Um, have you been riding any horses lately or no? Have I been riding any horses lately? 
I have not yeah. been riding too many horses lately. No. <laughs> no. Well, wasn't it last time you're telling us about the Duck Mountains hunt and you're on like this horse that was actually kind of small, and then you found out you're allergic to horses? Or no, that was your cameraman. Was no, allergic to horses. my cameraman was. So we, yeah, the network sent out this poor cameraman, Chris Varga, and he was the nicest guy. And he showed up all excited for the hunt, and then found out that each day was going to start and end with an hour and a half horse ride. And the guy is like <laughs> deathly allergic. So within five minutes of riding these horses, his eyes were almost swollen shut. He had snot rockets, like, and it's cold. So they're like frozen, <laughs> like, like dumb and dumber type stuff. Right. And I'm just looking back, but the guy toughed it out and he'd, he'd have to pack like extra gloves. And as soon as we got there, he swapped gloves out and would wipe his face down and within half an hour and popping who knows how many pills he could breathe again. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was funny. I've had, I've had some fun experiences on horses over the years. I mean, yeah, they put me on short horses. I'm not a short guy, and like my feet are almost dragging on the ground. Or yeah, yeah right. It's probably a Clydesdale. <laughs> See, the other thing too, though, is if I ride a Clydesdale, then I'm that much taller. So it doesn't matter how many guys. The nice thing about when you're on horses is that there's somebody in front of you because they clear the branches and they clear all the spider webs. But no matter how tall the person in front of me is, I'm always catching spider webs because my head's that much above. So like every now and then the guy in front of me would be on a higher horse. And I'm like, you know what? That's the one time I want to be on a shorter horse because I might go a distance without eating a few spiders. That's funny. Well, April, you made it back um, for our final round table. We're going to let Joe go here. So do you have any final thoughts or words for Joe before we go, April? No, um, nothing major. I had a lot of questions that I never got around to asking because it's already an hour. So, but I just, I really appreciate you, um, giving me a little bit of insight into Argentina, Joe. I appreciate that. And that's what you told me is going to be really helpful. Just some things that you don't see on the internet that people don't tell you unless you ask somebody who's actually experienced it. So thank you very much. Nope. My pleasure. And or you didn't get to your questions, I can go on tangents from time to time as you guys learned. So uh, I apologize for being long-winded at times, but uh, no, I've, en- I've enjoyed it. I can't believe it's already been an hour. It was fun. I enjoyed chatting with you guys as always. So thanks for having me on again. This has been a blast. Yeah, for sure. And, and Joe, I'll just say my final thoughts. I think I've said it to you a hundred times now. You're, you're a hell of a nice guy. We really appreciate you taking some time out. And I mean, you were so good. You even came on oh, 24 hours early. To make sure everything was going to go well. So, I I'm really appreciate keener, it. man. Yeah, i <laughs> Really appreciate you taking the time. I wish you all the luck this uh, this year in 2024. And uh, say hi to Steve and everyone else. And uh, take care of your family and keep posting on Instagram. We love following you. Absolutely. Sheldon, April, I appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to chat with me. And, uh, yeah, let's keep in touch throughout the year. And I can't wait to see where the year takes you guys either. Right on, man. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Ciao. Right on, right on, right on. That was Joe. Appel, <laughs> do you like that? Just yeah, yeah. Was, was that Matthew McConaughey before my yeah, eyes? Yeah, was. Yeah, he's a he's a beauty, man. Rocket. Um, yeah. Well, that's one hundred episode one hundred seventy. This outro is gonna be the same as every other outro, I think, because all you got to do is mention two things before we let you go. Um, the number one thing is the fish bingo. If you are playing that or wanting to play that, all the rules and Stuff like that's on our website. Um, this month, I believe, I can't remember what we're giving away, but it's something sweet. I can't remember. You have to go look on the website. And we're also giving away a, a nice fishing shack, too, eventually. So there's we've got a lot of cool prizes, gift cards, etc. So if you want to 
participate, just go check out the website and you'll figure out how to do it. Tristan, do you know, uh, I don't know if you see it on Instagram today. Um, the last winner got her prize today. So she put a little post up and was showing off what she got. And she actually got like an otter, like rod case, like one of those nice ones, mm-hmm. a bump board from Stillwater, um, a little like uh, fishing tackle system to put all your tackle in from Stillwater, a new fishing rod from 13 Fish from Stillwater. Um, like the package was, I bet you would be close to $1,000. Like unreal. Oh. Yeah. I used to, uh, it pays to play the bingo. Place to play bingo, man. Um, and the other thing that I want to mention too is our is, a, is the website and our store. If you're looking to help us out, uh, one way is to buy some merch. We got sweaters and hats and buffs and t-shirts and a lot of other things that you can find on there. Um, and then we also got like a section where we have a blog right up. We got some recipes on there, and we're trying to add those like kind of monthly or semi-monthly. Uh, or will they bi-monthly, not semi-monthly? So yeah, so just keep on checking out our website and and look up for the new updates. And if if you can, we really appreciate it if you could support us by liking or sharing our podcast, uh, give us a rating on your podcast platform, or leave a comment, um, or just reach out to us on social media and let us know how we're doing. Or if you have any questions or guests that you want us to hear next, we'll always take the information. Absolutely. And so if we don't see you on the ice or on the hard water, be sure to keep those bingo dabbers ready those pressure ridges and uh, fill that trophy wall okay that's right get that trophy wall ready thanks folks